Lesson 12 for December 16 through to 22. Overcoming Evil with Good. Sabbath afternoon, December 16. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we've been studying the book of Romans. We're coming towards the end of it. This is our second last lesson, but there's still so much for us to learn and understand and to give you praise for. We pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us as we open your word this week. We pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's read that again, Romans 12, verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. However much Paul is seeking to disabuse the Romans of their false notions of the law, he also calls all Christians to a high standard of obedience. This obedience comes from an inward change in our heart and mind, a change that comes only through the power of God working in a person surrendered to him. Romans contains no hint that this obedience comes automatically. The Christian needs to be enlightened as to what the requirements are. He or she must desire to obey these requirements. And finally, the Christian should seek the power without which that obedience is impossible. What this means is that works are part of the Christian faith. Paul never meant to depreciate works. In chapters 13 to 15, he gives them strong emphasis. This is no denial of what he has said earlier about righteousness by faith. On the contrary, works are the true expression of what it means to live by faith. One could even argue that, because of the added revelation after Jesus came, the New Testament requirements are more difficult than what was required in the Old. New Testament believers have been given an example of proper moral behaviour in Jesus Christ. He and no one else shows the pattern we are to follow. Let this mind be in you, which was also in not Moses, not Daniel, not David, not Solomon, not Enoch, not Deborah, not Elijah, Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. The standard doesn't, and can't, get higher than that. Sunday, December 17, Your Reasonable Service With chapter 11, the doctrinal part of the book of Romans ends. Chapters 12 through to 16 present practical instruction and personal notes. Nevertheless, these concluding chapters are extremely important because they show how the life of faith is to be lived. For starters, faith is not a substitute for obedience, as if faith somehow nullifies our obligation to obey the Lord. The moral precepts are still in force. They are explained, even amplified, in the New Testament. 
and no indication is given either that it will be easy for the Christian to regulate his or her life by these moral precepts. On the contrary, we're told that at times it could be difficult, for the battle with self and with sin is always hard, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4 verse 1. Christians are promised divine power and given assurance that victory is possible, but we are still in the world of the enemy and will have to fight many battles against temptation. The good news is that if we fall, if we stumble, we are not cast away but have a high priest who intercedes on our behalf, as it says in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. Question Read Romans chapter 12, verse 1. How does the analogy presented here reveal how we as Christians are to live? How does Romans chapter 12, verse 2 fit in with this? Well, let's read both those texts in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul is alluding to Old Testament sacrifices. As anciently animals were sacrificed to God, so now Christians ought to yield their bodies to God, not to be killed, but as living sacrifices dedicated to his service. In the time of ancient Israel, every offering brought as a sacrifice was examined carefully. If any defect was discovered in the animal, it was refused, for God had commanded that the offering be without blemish. So Christians are bidden to present their bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. In order to do this, All their powers must be preserved in the best possible condition. Although none of us are without blemish, the point is that we are to seek to live as spotlessly and as faithfully as we can. And so to finish today, a quote from Martin Luther's Commentary on Romans, page 167 and 168. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12.2. In this way, the Apostle describes Christian progress, for he addresses those who already are Christians. The Christian life does not mean to stand still, but to move from that which is good to that which is better. And, that's the end of the quote, what does it mean to move from good to better in the Christian life? Monday, December 18, to think soberly. We have talked a great deal this quarter about the perpetuity of God's moral law and have stressed again and again that Paul's message in the book of Romans is not one that teaches that the Ten Commandments are done away with or somehow made void by faith. Yet it's easy to get so caught up in the letter of the law that we forget the spirit behind it. And that spirit is love love for God and love for one another. 
While anyone can profess love, revealing that love in everyday life can be a different matter entirely. Question. Read Romans chapter 12 verses 3 through to 21. How are we to reveal love for others? Romans 12 beginning at verse 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For, as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another." Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches, in teaching. He who exhorts, in exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honour giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality." Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, Live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, Paul exalts love after dealing with the gifts of the Spirit. Love, the Greek word agape, is the more excellent way. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. Therefore, love describes the character of God. To love is to act towards others as God acts and to treat them as God treats them. Paul here shows how that love is to be expressed in a practical manner. One important principle comes through, and that is personal humility, a willingness of a person not to think of himself more highly than he ought, Romans 12.3. A willingness to give preference to one another in honour, verse 10. And a willingness not to be wise in your own opinion, verse 16. Christ's words about himself, "'Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart,' catch the essence of it. And that comes from Matthew 11.29. Of all people, Christians should be the most humble. 
After all, look at how helpless we are. Look at how fallen we are. Look at how dependent we are. Not only upon a righteousness outside of ourselves for salvation, but also on a power working in us in order to change us in ways we never can change ourselves. What have we to brag of? What have we to boast of? What have we in and of ourselves to be proud about? Nothing at all. Working from the starting point of this personal humility, not only before God, but before others, we are to live as Paul admonishes us in these verses. And so to finish today, read Romans 12, verse 18. How well are you applying this admonition in your own life right now? Might you need some attitude adjustment in order to do what the Word tells us here? Romans 12 Verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Tuesday, November 19, The Christian and the State Question. Read Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through to 7. What basic principles can we take from this passage about the ways in which we are to relate to the civil power of government? Romans 13, verses 1. Let's start there. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good, but... If you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. What makes Paul's words so interesting is that he wrote during a time when a pagan empire ruled the world, one that could be incredibly brutal, one that was at its core corrupt and one that knew nothing about the true God and would, within a few years, start a massive persecution of those who wanted to worship that God. In fact, Paul was put to death by that government. Yet despite all this, Paul was advocating that Christians be good citizens, even under a government like that? Yes, and that's because the idea of government itself is found throughout the Bible. The concept, the principle of government, is God-ordained. Human beings need to live in a community with rules and regulations and standards. Anarchy is not a biblical concept. That being said, 
It doesn't mean that God approves of all forms of government or how all governments are run. On the contrary, one doesn't have to look too far, either in history or in the world today, to see some brutal regimes. Yet, even in situations like these, Christians should, as much as possible, obey the laws of the land. Christians are to give loyal support to government so long as its claims do not conflict with the claims of God. One should consider very prayerfully and carefully, and with the counsel of others, before embarking on a path that puts him or her in conflict with the powers that be. We know from prophecy that one day all of God's faithful followers will be pitted against the political powers in control of the world, as we read in Revelation chapter 13. Until then, we should do all that we can before God to be good citizens in whichever country we live. Ellen White writes in Acts of the Apostles, page 69, We are to recognize human government as an ordinance of divine appointment and teach obedience to it as a sacred duty, within its legitimate sphere. But, when its claims conflict with the claims of God, we must obey God rather than men. God's word must be recognized as above all human legislation. We are not required to defy authorities. Our words, whether spoken or written, should be carefully considered, lest we place ourselves on record as uttering that which would make us appear antagonistic to law and order. We are not to say or do anything that would unnecessarily close up our way. Wednesday, December 20, Love One Another Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Romans 13, verse 8 How are we to understand this text? Does it mean that if we love, we have no obligation, then, to obey the law of God? As Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, Paul here amplifies the precepts of the law, showing that love must be the motivating power behind all that we do. Because the law is a transcript of the character of God, and God is love, to love, therefore, is to fulfill the law. Yet, Paul is not substituting some vague standard of love for the precisely detailed precepts of the law, as some Christians claim. The moral law is still binding because, again, it is what points out sin. And who is going to deny the reality of sin? However, the law truly can be kept only in the context of love. Remember, some of those who brought Christ to the cross then ran home to keep the law. Question. Which commandments did Paul cite as examples that illustrate the principle of love in law-keeping? Why these in particular? Romans 13, verses 9 and 10. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely... You shall love your neighbour as yourself. 
Love does no harm to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. Interestingly, the factor of love was not a newly introduced principle. By quoting Leviticus 19 verse 18, Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself, Paul shows that the principle was an integral part of the Old Testament system. Again, Paul appeals to the Old Testament to support his gospel preaching. Some argue from these texts that Paul is teaching that only the few commandments mentioned here are in effect. If so, does this mean then that Christians can dishonour their parents, worship idols, and have other gods before the Lord? Of course not. Look at the context here. Paul is dealing with how we relate to one another. He is dealing with personal relationships, which is why he specifies the commandments that centre on these relationships. His argument certainly shouldn't be construed as nullifying the rest of the law. And we're going to look at several texts here, because it tells us in the lesson, first of all, to go to Acts 15 verse 20, but then we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. And First Thessalonians 1 nine. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And First John chapter five verse twenty one. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Besides, as the New Testament writers point out, by showing love to others, we show our love to God, as it says in Matthew twenty five forty, and the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then in first John chapter four verses twenty and twenty one, which reads If someone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And so to finish today, think about your relationship with God and how it is reflected in your relationships with others. How big a factor is love in those relationships? How can you learn to love others the way God loves us? What stands in your way of doing just that? Thursday, December 21, Now is our salvation. Romans 13 verse 11 reads, And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. As we have stated all quarter, Paul had a very specific focus in this letter to the Romans, and that was to clarify for the church at Rome, especially the Jewish believers there, the role of faith and works in the New Covenant context. The issue was salvation and how a sinner is deemed righteous and holy before the Lord. To help those whose whole emphasis had been on law, Paul put the law in its proper role and context. 
Although ideally Judaism, even in the Old Testament times, was a religion of grace, legalism arose and did a lot of damage. How careful we as a church need to be that we don't make the same mistake. Question. Read Romans chapter 13 verses 11 through to 14. What event is Paul talking about here and how should we be acting in anticipation of that event? Romans 13, beginning at verse 11, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armour of light. Let us walk properly, as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfil its lusts. How fascinating that Paul was talking here to the believers, telling them to wake up and get it together because Jesus was coming back. The fact that this was written almost 2,000 years ago doesn't matter. We must always live in anticipation of the nearness of Christ's coming. As far as we're all concerned, as far as our own personal experiences go, the second coming is as near as the potential for your own deaths. Whether next week or in 40 years we close our eyes in death, and whether we sleep only four days or for 400 years, it makes no difference to us. The next thing we know is the second coming of Jesus. With death always potentially around the corner for any of us, time is indeed short, and our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Although Paul doesn't deal much in the book of Romans with the second coming, in the Thessalonian and the Corinthian letters he covers it in much more detail. After all, it's a crucial theme in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Without it, and the hope it offers, our faith is really meaningless. After all, what does justification by faith mean without the second coming to bring that wonderful truth to complete fruition? So to finish today, if you knew for certain that Jesus was coming next month, what would you change in your life and why? If you believe you need to change these things a month before Jesus comes, why shouldn't you change them now? What is the difference? Friday, December 22. From the book My Life Today, page 24, Ellen White writes, In the Bible the will of God is revealed. The truths of the word of God are the utterances of the Most High. He who makes these truths a part of his life becomes in every sense a new creature. He is not given new mental powers, but the darkness that through ignorance and sin has clouded the understanding is removed. The words, a new heart also will I give you, mean, a new mind will I give you. A change of heart is always attended by a clear conviction of Christian duty, an understanding of truth. 
He who gives the Scriptures close, prayerful attention will gain clear comprehension and sound judgment, as if, in turning to God, he had reached a higher plane of intelligence. And from Testimonies to the Church by the same author, Volume 8, page 253, The Lord is soon coming, and we must be ready and waiting for His appearing. Oh, how glorious it will be to see Him and be welcomed as His redeemed ones! Long have we waited, but our hope is not to grow dim. If we can but see the King in His beauty, we shall be forever blessed. I feel as if I must cry aloud, Homeward bound! We are nearing the time when Christ will come in power and great glory to take his ransomed ones to their eternal home. End of quote. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. One, in class, go over the question at the end of Thursday's study. What were the answers that people gave and how did they justify them? Two, the question of how we are to be good citizens and good Christians can be very complicated at times. If someone were to come to you seeking advice about standing for what he or she believed was God's will, even though it would put him or her in conflict with the government, what would you say? What counsel would you give? What principles should you follow? Why is this something that we should proceed toward only with the utmost seriousness and prayerful consideration? After all, not everyone thrown into the lion's den emerges unscathed. 3. What do you think is harder to do? To keep strict adherence to the letter of the law or to love God and love others unconditionally? Or could you argue that this question presents a false dichotomy? If so, why? And four. As we near the end of this quarter, talk about in class what you have learned from the book of Romans that helps us to understand why the Reformation was so important. What has Romans taught us about what we believe and why we believe? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Saved in the Sky, Past One. And there's an editor's note here before we start the story. Pastor Nikolai Zukotek has served the Seventh-day Adventist Church for more than 40 years as a pastor, writer, publisher and former president of the Ukrainian Union Conference. In the story below, he shares a pivotal moment from his time in the Soviet military. My time for mandatory service in the Soviet Army was nearly finished. One of my responsibilities was to serve as a journalist for the military newspaper. My superiors were pleased with my work and wanted me to continue as senior editor. They offered me an apartment in Leningrad, which during that time was very difficult to obtain. There was just one condition. I would have to become a communist. During Soviet times, a person couldn't work in such positions without being a communist. In a few days, I was invited to meet with the general. He told me, You can continue with military service, we'll give you officer rank, and you can stay with us. You will have business trips, travel to different places, and work for the military district. 
you can stay in the army and work here. So now I had two proposals, to become a chief editor or a military officer. This was a great temptation. I was thinking of what it would mean to become an officer and of all the things I would get. On the other hand, to have an apartment in Leningrad was a dream for me. I seriously considered accepting one of these offers, even though it would mean renouncing my faith in God and becoming a communist. At that time, I also served as a military skydiver and had participated in about 80 jumps. One day, as we prepared for another jump, the chief commander told me, I'll go first and you will be the last one to jump. We will have 15 soldiers in between. The parachutes of all the soldiers ahead of me would open automatically, but I would need to open mine manually. I thought this would be fine. I'm brave. I'm very experienced. I've done this many times before. I jumped last, and after a brief freefall, I pulled the ripcord. Nothing happened. Trying not to panic, I reached for the emergency cord and pulled. Again, no parachute appeared. There was nothing but blue sky above and the ground coming up fast below. I understood that this was the end. The feeling that overwhelmed me at this point is something only someone who has been in the sky can fully understand. And this story is to be continued next week. I'm sure you're going to listen. And whether you're listening on the podcast, whether you're listening to this service via YouTube, whether you've got it on an app, whether you have received it from someone else on your church's website. May I wish you much of God's blessing, and I'd love to hear from you, if at all possible. This lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.